2: Hello. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hi. Hello, Max. Good afternoon. And to you, sir. And to you. And uh, what about the program today? Uh, this week on the show, Andrea Bernstein, she is the uh, co-host of the podcast Trump Inc. And she's got a new book out. It's called American Oligarchs, the Kushners, the Trumps, and the Marriage of Money and Power. It's about... Um, the Trumps and the Kushner's and the marriage of money and power. Tell you guys what this book will not uh, make you feel better about the world. Great, as my experience upon reading it, uh, I did not. I did not feel more optimistic afterwards. Is this? Uh, I do think, uh, though, it is a large segment of the uh, last year's media cycle. We haven't actually had anyone on who's just sort of gone full. Trump in their reporting, I guess, except Maggie Haberman, of course. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, she actually hasn't gone full Trump in her reporting. She has been reporting about political corruption and business in New York for years and years. She was at the Observer for a very long time uh, and now is at WNYC, and that's kind of been her beat. So, like, her beat became
1: I was already national, on this corner. The
2: national story and this global story, sort of. And and I mean, uh, you will hear about it in the interview. But basically, I think right after the election, she felt like, I know this world that now is everyone's world. And I have some uh, responsibility to get in there. One thing I will say about the book, which is also true of the podcast, um, is I feel like uh, despite everyone in the world being on this story, it feels – sort of random a lot of the time. And the book really grounds what is happening and how Donald Trump became president in like decades and decades of family history and New York history and tri-state history. Uh, and it, it was the first time that it felt like cohesive to me. Well, you've answered my questions. If you're looking to answer other people's questions, maybe start a Q&A newsletter with MailChimp. They make it easy to start any dang kind of newsletter you want. Uh, You won't even have to start paying until a certain number of people subscribe. So if you want to dip a toe, dip that toe with MailChimp. Now here's Max with Andrea Bernstein. Hi, Andrea.
1: Hi, so great to be here.
2: <laughs> Thank you for uh, coming to do the podcast.
1: Can I say that it's the thing that the Trump Inc. team has most wanted me to do was to talk with you?
2: Uh, well, I will say that um, that's great and a little intimidating. But uh, there's one piece of that which is not surprising, which is that so I get like emails a fair amount from people who think that they would be good guests on the podcasts, And people are like, uh, you know, who I think should be on the show is uh, me. <laughs> and uh, I got a different one from your co-host who wrote me and said, I think you should have Andrea on the show. But it wasn't just like, hey, I think you should have Andrea on. It's pretty interesting stuff she's doing. He had a, a, like a real like um, Tao Bernstein. Like, uh, <laughs> Did, did like, he
1: send you the nine pillars?
2: <laughs> well, he didn't send them to me exactly, but then – uh, I followed up and I was like, yeah, definitely we should do this. And I was like, what do you think I should ask? And then he sent me the nine pillars. <laughs> uh and it's rare that someone both nominates a colleague of theirs to come on the show and has such a like a clear way of thinking about so it. Do you work. know
1: Ilya? You've never met Ilya. I've he never just met emailed Ilya. you out of the blue. Okay. He just
2: emailed me out of the blue. And and then put together this thing. And and I think it might help us talk about the book a little bit. The first uh pillar of Bernstein, is uh, everyone wants to help you. CEOs, public information officers, other journalists at rival outlets, people on the street, anyone could be a source. They just don't know it yet. Your job is to let them know.
1: Yeah, anybody can be a source. And it, it is, I mean, one of the interesting things about reporting on the Trumps and the Kushners is they seem so distant and far off there in the White House. But here in this area, the New York metropolitan area, Almost everybody knows one of the families and has had a personal experience with them. So in many cases, all I had to do was tell people, oh, I'm writing a book. And people said, oh, well, I happen to know so-and-so, and and maybe so-and-so can help you. So, I mean, many people were afraid to talk to me. So I wouldn't say that everybody wanted to help. But it's true, anybody could help.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, that was one of the questions I had reading the book, which was, This is among, if not the, like, hardest beat in the world. Lots of people are covering these folks. Lots of people are (laughs) trying to figure out how Donald Trump's business works. And I'm interested in how you get the main figures in this story to engage with you when dozens of reporters are asking them these questions, and then how you find the people who no one has talked to yet. And then the, the third part of that question, I guess, is like, How do you find something new when everyone's trying to find the same thing?
1: So, I mean, one of the things that gave me pause was not an obvious thing because one of the ways that I have covered corruption is by happily looking in the dark corners where nobody else is looking. When we at WNYC and when I started covering the Bridgegate scandal with Chris Christie, I had covered transportation. So when they said that they had realigned the lanes to have a traffic study, I was like, that is Definitely, definitely not a traffic study. <laughs> so I knew immediately, I knew that immediately that there was politics. And I had covered the Port Authority and I knew how to extract information from them. So I. Hold sorry. on.
2: Let's go back. Yeah. How do you extract information from the Port Authority?
1: So one of the big ways you extract information from the Port Authority is by showing up. So you go to the meetings and you ask the questions. But also I sort of. They don't like to respond to freedom of information requests, but the thing about the Port Authority is it's a bi-state agency, which is controlled by two governors. So in any situation where there is a tension, somebody is going to want to help you because they think it's going to thwart their other side. Mm -hmm. So that is one of the ways, that there were sort of people who were unhappy with the way the other side was doing things so they would be willing to talk. But then at the end of the day, sort of everybody wants to talk, especially when – You're an honest broker, and they understand that you're going to be fair about things. So persistence is another thing, just sort of hanging in there until Mm -hmm. people realize you're not going away, and it's better to talk to you.
2: This is a potentially naive question, but how important, how big a part of that process is being able to suss out people's motivations that way and play to them?
1: Well, I think that, you know, in all journalism, you're always looking for where is the oversight, where is the tension, where is the places where people might disagree. So it's one of the reasons why former employees of organizations tend to be really great sources. And there's a A lot of people that really know how to work LinkedIn well Mm -hmm. and can find out everybody that used to work at a company. And and I I don't do this so much, but uh, I mean, a lot of people I work with do. They'll just call a list of people. They'll you know get a bunch of names and they'll just call, call, call. So looking at those sources of tension is one way to extract information. But anyway, just to get back to your main question about (laughs) something that everybody else was covering. It so it wasn't my natural inclination, but also I did feel like I had a long view on this world. And also... Been covering... Because I'd been covering corruption in New York and New Jersey, politics, and also national politics. I had covered six presidential campaigns. So I just felt like I knew all the elements of this particular world. So I thought, okay, even though a lot of people are looking at it, I need to look at it because I have a perspective on it that is not precisely the same as anybody else's. So... That was one reason why I thought I should do it, even though it's a sandbox that everybody is playing in. But one of the things that I really discovered as I went along is that most people don't read things. Most people, or they read things very quickly. So you can find out so many things by reading stuff to the end. For example... I was reading the Ukraine testimony recently, and on page 394, there was this great anecdote about one of the corrupt prosecutors that Rudy Giuliani met with was so corrupt that U.S. officials helped arrange for a bug to be placed on his fish tank so he could be recorded. (laughs) And he was indeed recorded coaching suspects. So that was something that was there, but that most people didn't really have the patience to read through the documents to find.
2: That's the second pillar.
1: What's the second pillar?
2: Read every document.
1: Read every document, yeah. It
2: says here you've read the, read the Mueller report well, four everybody times. Everybody
1: helping you is, I mean, I think it's true, because it's sort of like you do need to be open to learning information from everywhere, which many people are not, and at any time. So I think there's a lot of that in the book, because things come from all different places. They come from government officials and Instagram accounts and videos that the Trump Organization posted and documents submitted with court cases in California, and et cetera, et cetera. So that is important to sort of think your information can come from anywhere and read everything. Isn't and, it um,
2: uh, the reading of everything? Isn't that um uh, boring?
1: Oh, my God, no. I, lo- I mean, no. I mean, just the Ukraine testimony itself, just to take one recent example, I was like, wow, this is like a movie. It's so... Interesting. So most of the time when I was reading stuff, I was literally feeling really thrilled. Wow, I am just finding out stuff I didn't know. And many things I read more than once because I feel like if I read it just once, I might not remember it. So I read it twice. Like the Mueller report. I know Ilya said I read it four times. I read it three times. (laughs) But I I had to because I really wanted to have the whole thing at my command. And I just feel like that process of reading over and over again is, is important. Some... Some things were less exciting than other things. I read so many books, including books written by Trumps. And a lot of those are very sort of self-promotional. So some of those parts are Not the most scintillating writing? Well, I mean, I found a lot of great material, for example, in Ivanka Trump's book, The Trump Card. But it's sort of not written as a narrative. So, you know, that was sort of a case of... I wouldn't say it was boring, but I would say it was, you know, not – I mean, there were there were times where I was just literally turning pages and couldn't put stuff down.
2: So part of it is literally just doing the work that other people might not be doing.
1: It's kind of simple, but yes. I mean, I think one of the big secrets to investigative journalism is just actually knowing what's there and ingesting it and really looking. You know, Bob Caro had this wonderful anecdote in The New Yorker. Did you read it about yeah. where he goes to this file cabinet? And he sits there and he reads the whole file cabinet. And I'm like, yes, that is exactly it. Because you just don't know on which page the incredible information is going to be.
2: Right. You don't you don't know where you're going to find the mic in the fish tank.
1: It could be on page 394. It could be on page one. And it could be something that you practically have already. I mean, there are many times I've gone back and looked at something that I have. And it turns out to contain a giant clue or the final piece of the puzzle or the thing that I need to know to make it all make sense.
2: This is not one of the pillars, but this experience since 2016, the volume is so relentless. Like the the stacking of scandals and Mm -hmm. incidents and leaks and drama And indictments, it's so relentless that at some point, at least for me a little bit, like the volume flattens and it's hard to tell like where the real spikes are, where the most serious ones are. It just kind of becomes this like hum, like this constant hum.
1: I mean, I thought about this even during the 2016 campaign because there were so many scandals surrounding Trump. People couldn't focus on any one of them, whereas with Hillary Clinton – people knew there was a problem with her emails. But with Trump, it was so many things that they all just went by so quickly, and I feel like this has been an accelerated version of that. Every day there is stuff that is so amazing, but then you forget the thing that happened last week because the new thing you're learning is so amazing.
2: Totally, and there's, and there's part of it that feels to me like that is by design, but the question is how do you attach the like appropriate weight to the appropriate thing? How do you decide, all right, this is something that I'm going to spend weeks or months digging into and really try to get to the bottom of?
1: So I'm going to back up with something, which is, I think, a pretty easy to follow example of this. So one of the things I did in the book, actually, Act 1 of the book about the Kushner family is about their Holocaust experience. So I had known that Jared Kushner's grandmother had given a testimony and I had watched it. In 1982, there was this real movement around recording the oral histories of people who had survived the Holocaust because there was a sense that people were going to start dying and then the history would be lost. So there was a very big movement and there were a lot of testimonies that were recorded and Jared Kushner's grandmother recorded her testimony. So I knew she had recorded a testimony and I was talking to somebody who knows more about the Holocaust than I do and this person said, well, is it true? And I said, well, wouldn't it be true? Why would people lie? And apparently people... Did lie. And then I realized, okay, so I have to treat this like any other thing that I would report out. So I am going to get all of the sources that I can. So she had given two testimonies. So one of them was done some years later and was only available in libraries. So I had to go to a library and watch it. Uh, And then I asked the Holocaust Research Center in New Jersey for all of the other testimonies of everybody that had lived in the same town in northeast Poland that she had lived in. And I listened to them too to make sure that the stories matched up. And I mean, essentially, the stories matched up. Sometimes numbers were different. Sometimes one person would say this happened to three people and the other person would say this happened to 20. But essentially, the outlines of the story were really consistent. A very small line in Ray Kushner, Jared Kushner's grandmother's second testimony, which she gave in 1996, sent me down a reporting trail. And she was asked by her interviewer, What's your name? And she said, Ray Kushner. And she said, what was your maiden name? She said, Ray Kushner. And I thought to myself, it's really, really unusual for a family to take on the matriarchal name versus the patriarchal name. And that got me going down a line of reporting why had the Kushner family, why did they take on the name Kushner and not the name Berkowitz, which was the name of Jared Kushner's grandfather. So this was something that stuck out to me as a likely significant fact. Whenever there's something that is not easily explained, it tends to be an important thing. So I just sort of started kind of asking around. And what happened is that Jared Kushner's grandfather changed his name and posed as his father-in-law's son because their understanding was they would get more favorable treatment by immigration authorities in the United States because his grandmother's father was alive. So they were not going to be allowed in as a family unit without a father-son relationship because of immigration laws. So that obviously, given what's going on now in the White House, was an incredibly interesting story that I was able to piece together. So I think that the answer to your question is that It's kind of like a combination of gut and also collecting facts. So, this is why I have a lot of whiteboards and (laughs) post-its, which I feel like is another one of those pillars. But the reason that that I have a lot of whiteboards and post-its is because it's when I think something is important, I will put it on a whiteboard and put it on a post-it. And I had for each chapter and each act of the book, I had post-its that I would put on whiteboards or I would put them on the table in my house and I would just look at them and look at them and look at them. And eventually they tell a story.
2: That gut instinct thing, that like um, watching that second conversation and being like, that's weird. I'm going to spend time on this. Is that a thing that has improved and like gotten better throughout your career? Or is that a thing you've like kind of always known how to do?
1: Um, I think kind of. Both. I mean, this is such a complex story. So I've really had to sort of marshal all of my attention and concentration. But I feel like one of the reasons that I started this kind of reporting is I – before I was doing investigative journalism, I was working in New York politics and in the government. I worked for the DA in Brooklyn and I worked for the controller. And I worked briefly – on David Dinkins' mayoral campaign when he ran against Rudy Giuliani. And sometime during that period, I read the book by Wayne Barrett and Jack Newfield called City for Sale. And it was such an explanation of how power worked in New York City. And it was a world that I lived in, but I had no idea what was really going on. And I thought to myself, okay, that is what I really want to do is explain how power works. So that's what I have always done. And I think the stories that I covered were simpler at the beginning.
2: Like the story itself was simpler or like reporting it out was simpler because now the mechanisms are so much more complex.
1: Well, I don't know that you can untangle that. Mm-hmm. So like, for example, I did a lot of stories when I was really starting out as during investigative journalism on the attorney general of New York and how he would get a campaign contribution and kill a case or get a campaign contribution and then hire somebody that the donor wanted them to hire or fire someone that the donor wanted them to fire. So that was really easy to trace. Plus, also, there was a new attorney general, and the staff was from the old attorney general, so they really wanted to talk. So it was a simpler structure, but also the mechanisms of corruption were simpler then Mm -hmm. because the laws were a little tighter. And the laws have gotten so loose now that it is much, much, much harder to follow these patterns and also the money now, which is one of the big themes of my book, can come from anywhere. It can come from Moscow or Ukraine or the United Arab Emirates. It used to be that the money flooding into the system would, you know, be coming from a construction contractor from Erie County. And then you would track that person. And that was much easier than trying to figure out how the money flows in from Kazakhstan. Do
2: you ever get scared doing this work?
1: Yes. Um, So, I mean, there were lots of things that made me crazy. One of the things I think that made me crazy is, so I talked to probably over 200 people. And of that, maybe 10 were like, you can use my name, no problem. Almost everybody said, even people that said, you know, I'm on good terms with these families, but like, I don't want the surus, just like a Yiddish word for, like, grief of having my name associated with it, because especially with Trump, publicly, anything can happen. And, you know, we see how he bullies people. He sends a tweet. So people were. like, I just, I don't want to be mixed up in that. So people didn't want to talk. And then a lot of the people that I spoke to who had lived through this history with the Trump family or the Kushner family felt terrible about their experiences. I mean, there were people who said, I live off the grid and Donald Trump must never find me. There were people who said, so-and-so Kushner ruined my life. So it was emotional to let all of these people and their stories in and then sort of process that in terms of what's happening now so that was scary. There's also on both families a long history of specifically going after journalists, of suing journalists, of discrediting journalists, of attacking journalists, and it caused a lot of anxiety. While I was writing the book, Jamal Khashoggi was cut up with a bone saw in Istanbul. Now, I don't think I'm going to be cut up with a bone saw, but it just creates a lot of anxiety about the sense of the value of journalists in society. And this was going on while Jared Kushner was not defending the murder, but just saying this is a very distasteful part of the world and you have to pick your allies, none of them is perfect, which is essentially sort of his defense of Saudi Arabia. So it was jarring and difficult. And I was in a sort of heightened state of emotional sensitivity all the time at the end of the book. So I hired a really great fact checker from The New Yorker. Shout out to Fergus McIntosh. He was so amazing. And so there's a technique that I had never done that I learned from them, which is that You go to the person that you're writing about at the very end, and you say, here are the facts. Please confirm or correct. Now, obviously, I'd gone and asked people questions all the time, but I hadn't done it in quite that way. And what was extraordinary to me is that it produced a lot of responses. Like, a lot of people say, like, for example, Tom Barrack. The question was, did Paul Manafort go on a vacation on your yacht after he was fired from the Trump campaign? And the answer was, not my yacht. So, yes, <laughs> and not on his yacht. So we changed it so that it didn't say it was his yacht. So thank you for helping clarify that. So I mean I read somewhere um, that
2: Kushner and you sent Kushner 80 something questions and he answered some of them.
1: Right. So I sent questions to the White House, separate sets for Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump and Donald Trump. The questions for Ivanka Trump and Donald Trump were ignored. The questions to Jared Kushner were mostly ignored, but there were a few sort of factual things that he corrected that we fixed. And then there was a bunch of – I mean, there was a number of questions about, for example, do you see a contradiction between your grandparents' immigration story and the current administration's policy, which just went unanswered? And it wasn't until a Time magazine reporter sat down with Jared Kushner recently that he had to actually answer that question which he did by saying he wasn't going to criticize his father-in-law. So, But at this end process where we were going to the White House and we were going to all the oligarchs, the other American oligarchs that were in the book, plus Oleg Deripaska and various other foreign oligarchs that are mentioned in the book, when we went to all of those people, they tend to send you responses that are intimidating I mean, because basically what they're saying is, like, if you fuck up, we're going to come for you. And, you know, some of these people really do have a history of suing people, which the cases get dropped, but it's a really unpleasant experience to go through. So, you know, it's helpful to have people respond, but also kind of scary when so many powerful people are saying to you, if you get this wrong, we'll ruin you. When indeed many of the people I interviewed said, "So and so ruined me."
2: So, what do you do with that? Like, what? How do you? How do you uh, how get, do you get right? through that?
1: Get it right. I mean, that's the thing. And so, I mean, I actually would rather somebody say all those things, and then I can go back and think, "Okay, is there any way that I've gotten this wrong? Is there any way that I could have possibly misinterpreted this?" And did, I mean, were you so, were you having
2: those thoughts as you were closing the book? Like, were you questioning?
1: I mean, not fundamental things, but like different incidents there were places where we thought okay well you know where i thought it was like okay okay i have to like fix this or so there was the other thing i mean one of the, it's kind of interesting to me because one of the things that was very fraught that not that many people have talked about is one of the new details in the book was that so jared kushner's father charlie kushner went to prison for witness tampering tax evasion and campaign finance fraud and the witness tampering came at the end because he thought his sister and his brother were conspiring incorrectly. He thought that they had cooked up and put Chris Christie, who was then the U.S. attorney, up to investigating Charlie Kushner for tax fraud and campaign finance fraud. So Charlie Kushner hired a police officer to hire a sex worker to entrap his brother-in-law, which he had videotaped, and then he sent the videotape to his sister on the eve of her son's engagement party. That was the witness tampering part of it. And... One of the things that I uncovered in the course of this is that uh, that Charlie Kushner had been a patron himself of the sex worker and had used the pseudonym John Hess in their encounters. And that was a fact that the Kushner family really did not want out in the public. And it was one of the reasons why Charlie Kushner pleaded guilty rather than fighting the charges. So when I, I went to them, and they said to me their response was, we investigated it, and we found zero evidence that that was true.
2: So that was the Kushner's response? That
1: was the C- Charlie Kushner's lawyer's response to me, which is in the book. And But when they said that to me, I thought to myself, is there any way I could have misinterpreted? So I went to all of the different seven people who knew about the situation, who had spoken to me. And I said, is there any way that I could have gotten this wrong? And what came back was no. So even though it's scary to be confronted that way by a lawyer who's like, you're wrong. And if you're wrong about something like that, that's a very serious thing to be wrong about. So I wanted to make sure I was right. So one of the ways you said, how do you deal with the fear is by really feeling like, okay, I have everything nailed down. Now, even having said that, it's such a crazy world that I'm constantly thinking, wait, did I really get that right?
2: I'm just expanding on what you what, – when you say it's a crazy world, what do you mean?
1: I mean, like, there's no – everything that happens, there's no basis for – it's not like, oh, yeah, I've seen this thing before. I've never seen a lawyer say a president could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and not suffer any consequences. And – That kind of thing happens every day where something happens that I have no precedent for, no basis in understanding, and I have to question myself, is this really happening? Is it really the thing that I am seeing?
2: So how, after doing this years-long investigation into how the president does business, how much has digging into the way that he works giving you an opportunity to make sense of this crazy world or is or is the craziness just spinning and spiraling i
1: think that the i mean i do this is really i feel like the project of my book which is why i feel like i hope it is empowering because i wanted to tell the story not just of these families but of the choices that have been made in this country that have gotten our democracy to this point. And I don't think Trump is a random unicorn kind of phenomenon. I think that Trump was produced by years of two things, years of weakening of our campaign finance system and our anti-corruption laws and lowering of taxes, which are intimately connected. When you cut taxes, people have more money to manipulate the political process. And this is something that the founders really wanted to protect against. So their belief was human beings are going to have desires that are corrupt. And we just have to accept that. So we'll structure the system in a way that mitigates that and that prevents that as far as possible. Mm -hmm. And what has happened, particularly in, say, the last 50 years, is that those systems designed to prevent this temptation have broken down. And so when Trump came in in 2016, the systems were so broken that they created an opening for this transactional businessman who is uninhibited about mixing personal, family, and public interests and... Part of it is him and his family and these families' choices, and also part of it is the choices that we have made. But I feel that he's going to make the choices that he can make, but we as a country can make different sets of choices. And that's what I, the story that I really want to tell, that it was a specific set of choices that got us to this moment, and it's a specific set that can get us out.
2: It's a very cohesive story, like, and it, and it does the thing that you're talking about. Like It does help make sense of it. Do you think that he has a cohesive story that he's telling himself?
1: I mean, yes and no, right? I mean, I think the story that he tells himself is he's a successful businessman and that when he does it, it's right. I do think he's a very impulsive person. And I do think a lot of his decisions are not made with a sort of long arc of history thought out. But it's a consistent story. He's so consistent. And one of the things that I deck up for a recent episode of Trump Inc. was an old interview by his first biographer, Wayne Barrett, where he's describing Donald Trump, this was in nineteen ninety-two, as sitting up at 3 a.m. and Stephen eating Brothers hamburgers. In his face, yeah. Right. And watching television. And it's like that's the same guy. So I think he's consistent and he's consistent in the stories that he tells about himself. We all know tremendous, the biggest, the best, unprecedented, the first. But that doesn't mean that he has a sort of long historical plan. Mm -hmm. And I think his plan is just to sort of enhance his own power.
2: Well, in that same episode, I mean, Mm. off that last thing he said, in that same episode, you had this line that when he says, it didn't rain on my inauguration day. Yeah. And it did. There's a version when you hear that, that feels insane.
1: Gaslighty insane.
2: It's Mm -hmm. like you are saying the sky is pink. I'm looking at the sky, the sky is blue. And you had this line in that episode with Wayne Barrett basically saying, like, that is a way for him to show power.
1: Yeah, it is. It is. Defining the truth is a big way of showing power. And so my father is a Hannah Arendt scholar. And I asked him as I was sort of getting to the end of the book, because I knew that she had written a lot about this, about this issue of sort of defining truth. And um, I said, can you help me find a Hannah Arendt quote? And he said, sure, just read these seven books, because that's what academics do. So I actually did read large chunks of the origins of totalitarianism. Not three times, but I did read large chunks of it, in which Hannah Arendt talks about And I want to be clear, I don't think we're living in Nazi Germany now, but she talks about one of the big tools of the Nazis was that they could define the truth in any day and everybody understood they could do that. And that it created a place of moral relativism where people became disempowered and felt powerless. And so I finally... After many different go-rounds with my father, he gave me a story from The New Yorker from 1967 that Hannah Arendt wrote called uh, Truth in Politics. And it was about this very thing. So this was during the Vietnam War, and it was about the sense of that what happens when you break down, when you start saying to people, there's no truth, only opinion, which I get a lot of now. And I get it from the right and the left. People will say, well, that's your opinion. And I'm like, no, 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 this is the fact. No, that's your opinion. Well, when you get into the realm where there's no truth, anything can happen, and it creates the basis for a world where you can really have people that are seriously disempowered because there's no sense of a, a commonality, a common good, something that people share. So... That is, I think, the world that Trump is pushing for, and also, I mean, Jared Kushner has played a big role in that, and sort of pushing for a world where the powerful people get to define what is. And one of the reasons why I so wanted to write this book was because I wanted to say, no, I'm going to write this story. I'm going to write the story that is, based on all of the things I can put together, versus what they're saying it is. And I think that that is really one of the essential projects of our time, which is to just keep telling what is happening and and hang on to the sense that there is a truth because hopefully at some point it will come back in vogue
2: <laughs> the truth <laughs> the truth do you ever worry that um you know working at WNYC making a podcast writing a book published by Norton that um the truth is being heard by the people who are, are uh who are already ready for it
1: you know i you can i just cannot I mean, you know, I've spent so much time – so I actually have been out in the world. You know, I've been all through swing states. I've been in red states. I've, like, talked to a lot of people in the world. And I think you cannot get hung up on the idea of who's hearing stuff because I think even in the world of potentially receptive people, but people need to be reminded that there is a truth, somebody has to keep defending that. And I don't feel alone in all of this. I mean, I think a lot of journalists and writers are working on this. But I think it's an important project of our time. And one of the things when we started this whole sort of Trump, Inc. project that we felt was really important was to have a lot of collaborators. So we have a lot of collaborators from all over the media. So
2: The, uh, the ninth pillar?
1: The ninth pillar.
2: <laughs> is um, – let's see. I'll just read Ilya's uh, words here. Collaboration makes better journalism – Believe in the people around you. Consider them to be as smart and hardworking as you are. Be kind and listen well. And I heard from Meg Kramer, who also works on the show with you. <laughs> uh, and I asked her what I should ask. And that was the thing that she pointed to, too, which was true. And I realized as I was reading the book, like, over and over and over and over again, you cite other people's work mm-hmm. in the book. And then Trump Inc., like, is in on it. You guys are doing stories with yeah. The New Yorker. It feels like a really collaborative experience and, and like what what, uh, what is that thing about you like why why
1: uh... so there's a couple of things about it first of all I feel like I am constantly learning from the people around me so I learn new things and new ways of being and I am not like particularly interested in just sort of stagnating and doing what I do I want to keep learning new things all the time and I feel one of the great ways of doing that is to collaborate with people who know more than you so, so well when we started this project with ProPublica, I mean, there's some of the best investigative journalists in the country, maybe the world. So it felt to me like, oh, wow, like really, I have this deep local knowledge of New York corruption. But here are people who are going to sort of, you know, open a whole new world of different kinds of investigative techniques, which has happened. But then also there are so many other journalists working on this. And the project is so big and so complicated. You can spend a year looking at a particular shell company that gave to Donald Trump's inaugural and still not know what it is, that there's an awful lot of, for example, David Farenthold has been doing a lot of work uh, from the Washington Post, has been doing a lot of work on sort of Trump and immigration and uh, undocumented employees. So I got a tip and I was like, I'm never going to be able to follow this up. So I just gave it to him. And then, you know, there are times that I also will call him or I'll call his partner and I'll be like, okay, you have this figure, this $25 million loan figure. Can you tell me how you calculated that? Because I don't want to go down this rabbit hole you know, and spend weeks on it if you've already been through it. So maybe you could help me. And, and typically they do. So there is a lot of back and forth on this beat because uh, it makes us all more powerful. So I think that's sort of like a grand scheme of it. I like collaborating because I feel like I learn more. I feel like I, my work rests on a lot of other people's work.
2: That all sounds totally right. But I want you to just I want you to engage with this uh, yeah, uh, one degree more, uh-huh, okay. which is like that sounds totally logical. Mm-hmm. That logic is also available to lots of journalists. Mm-hmm. Not all journalists mm-hmm. buy that or go down that route because I think it's too important to them for it to be their thing. Yeah. So the question is, like, why aren't, for... why aren't you wired that way?
1: I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm a competitive person. I don't want to suggest I'm not. And I like winning, <laughs> so I like being first. But I feel like, in particular, this story is too big for that. But also, I just really like working with other people. I find it very lonely just working on my own. I like to call people and get feedback. And I think that uh, when you have a team of people and everybody sort of gets to do every role at some point, everybody becomes better and you all become better together. So. You know, I don't know what else to say about that other than I – also, I do believe in people. I mean, I do really have a very specific philosophy that if you believe the best of people, they will perform their best. and That's the way I like to be treated, and I think most people like to be treated that way. So,
2: Have you always been wired that way?
1: I think so, maybe. Uh, yes, I actually think I have always been that way. I was on the cross-country team in high school. I was very slow, but I won the most team spirit award. Many years later, somebody told me that was maybe a consolation prize award, but I always believed, like, yes, I had the most team spirit. So, but I am a competitive person, so I, I have both qualities.
2: Okay, here's a question I have. I learned so much reading the book and listening to the show. I mean, like, I, I love the show, and I've been listening to it the whole time, And and one of the things that they both do for me is tease out those things that do deserve attention like it's it's like a little mm. it's a little bit of signal and noise for me yeah yeah you know? I've just been talking people's ear off about that. I've you know read the book over the last couple of days and I've just been talking people's oh, ear good, off good. about these anecdotes you know like the, the scene where Trump is like telling the state he's got the bank
1: oh yeah he's got the bank <laughs> uh,
2: funds and he's telling the bank he's got the state yeah. approval and sends the bank the contract. and He says, here it is with the state approval and there's no signature. Yeah. And then the bank signs it and then he sends it back to the yeah. state. Like,
1: His, that, was the, that was the deal that made him a Manhattan mogul. The Commodore. Yeah, the Commodore Hotel. And then you forgot the part where he brags about it all in the art of the deal and how he was so pleased with himself for having fooled state officials. The person who found that out was Wayne Barrett, who went and actually looked at the contract in the file and figured out it wasn't signed. So that's the thing about reading every piece of paper. But Trump was happy about it. Somebody said to me last night, do you think that he's happy to be called an oligarch? And I thought, oh, maybe. I mean, because he's sort of talked very respectfully of oligarchs. Sure. When he was in uh, Moscow for Miss Universe, he said all the oligarchs were there. So maybe he likes that. I mean, I think it's a, it does feed into his sense of who he is. Anyway, sorry, you were talking about the anecdotes.
2: How much time do you, do you spend thinking about what he thinks about? Like uh... – I wonder if he likes being called an oligarch. Oh, like how much? How yeah. much? Like um, uh, you you spent so much time in documents and mm-hmm. facts. How much have you let yourself do? Um, like fan fiction, armchair psychology.
1: I really don't like to do that. I mean, I obviously do some of it, but I really like to let people's words and and the documents speak for themselves. You know, there's a lot of books that are written about people where their motives imputed like he was afraid he feared i'm sure i said that in places in the book but i tried to just let his own actions and words and everybody's actions and words speak for them and let that express the motivation
2: okay so the anecdotes mm-hmm. for people who have not read the book I have those things, right, that I, like, I just want to tell everyone. I've just been pulling people aside in the office for the last three days. i am just been like, here's another fucking thing I read last night. It's crazy.
1: Okay, what else? Uh, tell me one other one.
2: Well, I want the ones from I, – I was interested in the ones from you.
1: So another particularly satisfying sort of moment was when I figured out the whole story about the Legos being glued together. <laughs> yeah. So Ivanka Trump um, in the middle of the last decade gives an interview with Conan O'Brien And she's very enthusiastically telling a story about how one Christmas when she was given Barbies and her brothers were given Legos, she was very upset because she wanted the Legos. And she took the Legos into her own bedroom, borrowed some super glue from her mother, Ivana, who had it because she needed to glue her nails on, and super glued the Legos together into a model of Trump Tower and – She had taken Eric's Lego and his toy was ruined, but then she talked about how her father had come into her room and said, you know, there's actually four setbacks, not five, or maybe it was five, not four, but it wasn't actually Trump Tower, and she was like, and I was six years old. So she tells this story with a lot of alacrity, but it turns out that the story is actually Donald Trump's story, which he told in The Art of the Deal about how he glued together his brother Robert's blocks one Christmas – and then I got in touch with his co-writer, Tony Schwartz, and I said, did that happen? And He said, less than a 50% chance. <laughs> now, Ivanka Trump actually grapples with that in her book. I mean, she says it wasn't the truth, actually, that was important. It was what it said about our family and what was important in our family, because that's a paraphrase. But that is essentially what she said. And to me, it was such an interesting anecdote and so telling about the Trump family because they're constantly telling these stories about themselves that are not true, And that's fine so long as they serve the business and the brand. So when I sort of pieced all of that together, plus the kicker was that she sent out something on Instagram, which was a picture of her own daughter building a magnetile structure when she was two years old, which would be beyond the capability of most two-year-olds. And it said, she's a builder. So this is the family myth being perpetuated generation to generation to generation, and that is one of the things that I really wanted to query and write about in the book, was how do these codes get passed on from one generation to the next? So I was particularly delighted when I strung all of that together. Um, There's another story in the book that I really liked, too, when I figured it out, which was that um, in 2011, when Donald Trump was testing the waters for president... A rival candidate filed a complaint when Michael Cohen took Trump's jet to Iowa. And the complaint was that he was at the direction of Donald Trump using company resources to benefit the campaign illegally and also because they had gotten money from someone else taking an illegal campaign contribution. Well, the structure of that was almost exactly the same as what happened in Stormy Daniels which I knew about because I had been covering that court case, and I knew that Michael Cohen had one of the major things that he pleaded guilty to was taking money at the direction of a candidate for federal office in violation of campaign finance laws. So they had done the thing in 2011. And what happened was is that the chairman of the FEC at the time, was someone who had come from a world where he believed that there should not be any campaign finance enforcement and had cut by a factor of, I think, five the number of campaign finance enforcements and refused to let this particular one go forward. And that chairman was Don McGahn, who eventually became the White House counsel. So it just amazed me that here was Don McGahn in 2011 stopping an investigation into the very thing that – Michael Cohen is serving prison time for and could have been the thing that swayed the 2016 election. I mean, it was so close, anything could have swayed it. But this could have too. So then Don McGann comes back and plays the role that we all know as White House counsel cooperating with Robert Mueller. So one of the things that was particularly amazing to me is the way the characters kept coming back. Mm-hmm. So the epigraph of the book is from Charlie Kushner. It says, no human being could write this script. Only God could have. And I kept feeling that way because as I was writing this in real time, characters kept coming back as if I was writing a work of fiction. Rudy Giuliani is a part of the book in the beginning and comes back in the end, as we all know. Roy Cohn is another one. Roger Stone is another one. Paul Manafort is another one. It's not just the same types of people. It's the same people doing the same things that are now... The cause of this national and international drama that we're living through in a way that I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this.
2: And part of both of those stories, I mean, part of the connective tissue of both of those stories is what he has done systematically since he was 29 years old and, like, sending essentially, like, forged documents to banks to buy the Commodore Hotel is pushing to see how far.
1: How far I can go. He
2: can go. Yeah. And then as soon as he gets there, that's the new line.
1: Right. I mean, we see that with both the Trump and the Kushner families. Like, just don't believe in rules and don't believe the rules apply to them. And it's historically and it's now. And I think one of the things that we really can see with President Trump is each time he gets away with it, he's empowered to do something yeah. Even more serious, Jared Kushner too. There was a story where um, that somebody told me about the deal that he worked on to refinance his big skyscraper at Six Six Six, and he had paid more money than anybody had ever paid for a Manhattan office building right before the Great Recession, and then had to refinance it under a lot of pressure, and everything almost fell apart, but they sort of managed to offload a lot of risk. They managed to get other people to take what is called, in real estate parlance, a haircut. So all these other people lost money, and they managed to sort of cobble together a deal to refinance the building. And the lesson that he learned from that was not, holy shit, I shouldn't take on risk. It was like, I should take on as much risk as I can.
2: Because there is actually no risk.
1: So that, I think, is really an emblematic theme with both of these families, that You just keep on taking the risk. You keep pushing it further than you think you can, and then you succeed, and then you do it again in a bigger way.
2: Right. And I feel like we're talking on Thursday, January 23rd. By the time this airs, this impeachment trial might be over. Could be. It could be. I
1: mean, I think we know what's going to happen. I don't think, right? There's a foregone conclusion. That's (laughs) an unnecessary
2: setup to the point, which is like...
1: Donald Trump is not going to suffer a reckoning. Right. and And in fact... Has never suffered. I mean... He's he's undergoing a reckoning, but he's not facing any consequences.
2: And but by the logic of your book, this is like literally the American checks and balances democracy. Yeah. This is it laid bare, and he's going to pass. Yeah. I so mean, what's going to yeah. happen? I mean, it's it, it's not insignificant, right? That the phone call about Ukraine comes the day after. Day after that, that like.
1: The day after Mueller testifies is when it comes after, right? Right.
2: Mueller testifies, right. the next day pushes. And like this impeachment, he, he is going to be acquitted. And like, what's what's going to happen to Yeah. Next I day? mean,
1: it's been interesting for me because I think as we've covered this story, some people have said to me, well, is that going to bring him down? I mean, is that a crime? Is that a crime? Is that a crime? And I feel like as we've gone on, it's more and more irrelevant. Because they believe he can't suffer any criminal consequences. that case is going to the Supreme Court. It'll be argued March 20th. So I think that it sort of gets us back to this issue of like, well, what can we do? We can document it and we can fight for this idea that there is still a sense of common understanding that is worth fighting for. But really... It is, I think, uh, one of the things that is so kind of disruptive about the times that we're living in is that this cycle of you've exposed somebody bad, they experience shame, they apologize, or, you know, whatever. But there is some cycle of things that happen, and those are not happening with Trump.
2: It must feel wild to have done, if not the biggest, exposing project of your life, at least— the biggest story that you have exposed Mm -hmm. and to feel like all the other times the input was expose and the output was action and now you've dedicated years of your life, you've written this book which exposes all these things. Right. And it's like...
1: It's why the last word of the book is hope because I still believe it's a hopeful enterprise of trying to say what happened here and trying for us to understand it because... You know, I'm not seeing somebody go to prison or be indicted. Now, having said that, I mean, you know, a lot of times the consequences are so minor that it's frustrating. I mean, I uncovered a bribery scandal at the Port Authority, and the and the penalty was a year of house arrest. I don't know, if, like, how far down this rabbit hole, but basically, the chairman of the Port Authority had extorted a bribe from United Airlines, which was in the form of a special flight route to his country house in South Carolina that they had to put in, which cost them millions of dollars, and he was about to give them millions and millions more dollars in tax breaks for it. Uh, And he was caught, and he was indicted, and he pleaded guilty, and his sentence was living for a year in that house. (laughs) So, you know, I don't (laughs) want to overstate the ability of, you know, satisfactory consequences. I mean, I spent a lot of time covering Chris Christie in Bridgegate. And uh, he personally, even though it was all about expressing his power and dominance, has really not, I mean, it's his top aides that are going to go to prison if they do. Now, this is a whole case that was just recently argued, and it actually looks like They may not, and there may be no consequences, and then there will be very little in the way of tools of corruption prosecutors in America. So
2: So you're feeling hope.
1: I really don't mean to say that I feel false hope. And I don't want to end this book or this interview suggesting to people like, yes, I've just laid out all these really bad misdeeds and the destruction of democracy, and it's this century and decades-long process of unraveling. And I don't want to say, but be hopeful. It's all going to be fine. It's definitely not what I'm saying. But what I do want to say is that hope is an action. And I feel that writing and documenting is an action. And when I stop doing those things, I will be hopeless But because I am still doing those things, it means that I still have hope. So that's what I mean to say, which is not the same thing as a false hope or an everything is going to be rosy or anything like that. It's just that so long as we can continue to be actors in the world, we can be hopeful human beings. Don't give up. I mean, one of the things that I do in my epilogue is I go back and look at Jared Kushner's grandmother and the warning that she gave – And she said very specifically, if we don't tell this story in 20 years, who is there going to be to tell, you have to watch who comes up on top of your government. And of course, that was many decades before her grandson was on top of the government. But I think about what it must have been like living through the actual Holocaust And they lived in a town in northeast Poland. In that area of northeast Poland, there were tens of thousands of Jews. By 1943, there were hundreds. And the ones that survived kept thinking, there must be some reason why God has chosen us to live. So we're going to live. But then they actually realized if they didn't escape, they were going to die. So they dug a tunnel underneath the barbed wire and underneath the searchlights and crawled through this several-football-fields-length tunnel two feet wide and got out and ran to the forest and spent the winter, the Polish winter, hiding out in the forest and made it. And I think, oh, my God, like, how, how could you even have any hope to survive in those circumstances? And yet they did. So I feel if they could do that and believe that there was a reason to do that, then so can we.
2: Uh, well, that is, um, clearly a perfect place to end, uh, your book. And, and one could argue the obvious place to end this interview, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, cause I have some more questions for you. I have a couple more things and then we'll go. Uh, here's one of them. So all these anecdotes, right? They're just wild and they stack and they're crazy. And I come in the office and I want to tell everyone that all these like, holy shit moments throughout the book. Right. But I realized like when I finished it, that I, I could, I didn't. I couldn't articulate what your definition
1: of power was. Hmm. Interesting question. What What is power? I think power is being able to assert your will over other people. And one of the reasons why I named the book American Oligarchs is because there's a sense in this administration that some people are on the inside and some people are on the outside. So if you are... Wealthy, or if you're in the president's family, or you're loyal in some way, you're on the inside. And if you're not, you're on the outside. And that can be anybody. It can be a Democratic member of Congress, it can be an immigrant, it can be a trans person, it can be the children of immigrants, people who are not seen as fully human or having the same set of privileges as those who are on the inside. And I think that power is being able to choose who the winners are, which is just very, very important to Donald Trump. He wants to be a winner, not a loser. And it's a very anti-democratic way of seeing things, right? I mean, we have a very imperfect system of government and always have, so I want to acknowledge that. But there is a sense that we're all in it together that underlies the principles of American democracy. We've been sometimes just okay at living up to that and sometimes terrible. And now we're in one of those terrible phases. And I think that power is being able to define that, who gets to sort of fully participate and benefit from being a part of society and who gets to be a winner, who gets things that they want.
2: What's the relationship between shame and power, do you think?
1: Oh, well... Like, hmm. can,
2: can you get there and feel shame?
1: I mean, I think that there's a particular shamelessness with Donald Trump, with Rudy Giuliani, with, you know, all – I mean, look at Lindsey Graham, right? Mitt Romney, people who just – I mean, Mitt Romney got up and gave a speech when Trump was running for office and he was said, this is going to be the most terrible thing. We can never let this happen. It's going to undo everything that we hold dear. And now he's one of the jurors on the impeachment trial, and so far he's holding fast. Same for Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham was a huge critic of Donald Trump. So I think that there's a certain kind of shamelessness that they're exhibiting, but it comes from the top. Because one of the reasons that I think the sort of democratic system works is that people do feel shamed. Like, for example, ashamed about lying. Like Chris Christie that I covered for many years was very careful to not to try to not tell outright lies. Now, sometimes he did, but he was careful to try. Donald Trump was like, I don't care. 30 a day, 30 a day, 16,000, according to the Washington Post, lies and misrepresentations since he became president. I mean, it's just stunning and unabashed. So to me, it's sort of like that shamelessness is connected with his power, which is the power to define what is true.
2: I understand it better now. Okay. good. I feel like a slightly uncomfortable thing that I have talked about with people a lot, like over drinks, Mm -hmm. but I have not heard talked about publicly that much except by the president, is how good his election has been for the news business.
1: Yeah, well, I do think about that. I mean, I do really think about that because I think that, you know, one of the things that Trump has done so successfully is saying to people, you're all profiting from me. And I think in some ways we are. I mean, I wrote a book about Trump, you know, so I am specifically in on that as well. well my question so, is,
2: um, has the election of Donald Trump been good for your career?
1: I mean, I think that it has created this historical moment where I like have a skill that I can like suddenly really put to good use. So, yes. Yes. But it's a crazy thing. So, I mean, it's not necessarily the most important thing to me. So, you know, I'd rather that we not live in an oligarchy or be on the precipice of one.
2: Do you think that's true for everyone? Because it, it, it's made a lot of I people's mean, careers I, um, better.
1: I, I, you know, I feel like it's impossible to have like two sets of feelings at once, right? So for me, I feel like there's... A, many crazy terrible things going on and i feel like professionally really like i really have a contribution to make that's the contradiction of life the contradiction of life is that this sort of unraveling of government has created a professional big professional opportunity for me but also for a lot of people but what else are we going to do i mean i really do think mostly journalism is rising to the occasion mostly mainstream journalism but it's a ball and chain because I feel sort of tied to living with this darkness all the time. Yeah. Which, I mean, I'd rather not be living with that.
2: We've done pretty well in the pillars. We've hit, um, like, most of them. You
1: feel free to go through them. I'll, I'll try to do them quickly. No, there's only <laughs> there's only actually one <laughs> more
2: that I don't want to talk about, which is... Uh, Smile when you're on the radio. Oh,
1: smile when you're on the radio. Yes, it's true. Well,
2: um, I've been smiling this whole time. I feel like people should know that. Yes. Uh, Even though we're talking about this very dark stuff, uh, but it's been very enjoyable to talk to you.
1: It's really been great. It's been a great discussion.
2: Thank you for doing this. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern is Marina Clementi. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp and Pit Writers. And thanks so much to Andrea for coming in. Uh, I really enjoyed myself. I'm not sure I feel better about the world, but it um, makes a little bit more sense. Her podcast is Trump Inc. from WNYC Studios, and her new book is American Oligarchs. The Kushners, the Trumps, and the marriage of money and power. We'll see you next week.
0: Why do you run? Why does anyone